Something that really gets under my skin is when I encounter a worldview that contradicts itself, that kind of falls in under its own weight, and people don't see it. And for that reason, I think I, I was born at the wrong time, because I'm destined to continually feel that vein throbbing in my forehead. Our, our world and the, the culture of the day insists on things like the notion that there is no absolute truth. There's no capital T truth, right? Everything is relative. You have your truth, I have my truth, and that's fine. It doesn't even matter if they don't mesh together. They can both be true in their own way. There's no absolute truth. And of course, that statement is true. Absolutely. Oh, there that one goes. Or the, I remember in the uh, kind of mid to late 90s, the, the emphasis that, that the highest value was, was tolerance. And I thought to myself at first, well, as a Baptist, I get on board with that. We invented religious toleration during a time in America when it was almost unheard of. But then we began to understand that what was meant by tolerance wasn't we coexist peacefully and, and love one another and live alongside each other and don't snipe at each other, but rather I have to endorse everything you say and, and suggest that it is wonderful and, and valid and yet, at the same time, the church has been less and less tolerated and more and more scorned. And most recently, the one that I have noticed is the notion that shame, shame is out of style. Shame is no more. You cannot feel shame, even though it is an absolutely basic human emotion. You're not allowed to feel it. You're not allowed to cause it, for sure. Shame is so bad. And at the same time, we see people being shamed in the culture. People being just saddled with this, this kind of crippling shame. You, you, you see how, how we've decided to mob together against people if they make the wrong misstep. Say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, and suddenly, whoom, the mob is upon you. It happens on Twitter, it happens here, it happens on the news. And what happens now, grown adults are treated like they're you know, second graders and trotted out and made to say, I'm sorry, and they're punished with all sorts of uh, shame and, and all sorts of threats and all sorts of condemnation. And when I look at the scriptures, I find that to be unsurprising. That simultaneously there is this notion of shame being no longer useful and shame being always bad and always wrong while shame being piled around people's necks and hung on them as if we're putting them into, into the stocks to be mocked and apples thrown at them or into the, the pillory to be whipped like our early Baptists were by those people in Boston. I'm over it. It's okay. But when we think about this, and what the scripture has to say about shame, when we look at the, the nature of what shame is and how it can be used of God, but also used by the enemy, it occurs to me that we in the church rarely talk about this. And so I want to take this morning to suss this out. What is shame? What does it look like when it's properly activated by the Holy Spirit? What does it look like when the enemy is using it to try and deactivate us as followers of Jesus? and tie us up. What we see is that the devil, our enemy, working in concert, as he usually does with the world, the world's system, has two-pronged approach. They seem like opposites, but they're actually two sides of the same coin. On one hand, we have the notion that we should be shameless. 
that shamelessness is the answer to the problem of shame. Because shame feels bad, so just be shameless. Problem solved. Very, very common today. On the other hand, we have from shameless, shameful or shame-filled that people ought to feel so crushed by their shame, so absolutely self-loathing that they're paralyzed by it. And the enemy likes to use both of these, sometimes even at the same time, and keep us off balance. Start with shameless, shamelessness. And I'm not talking about how in the garden we were initially without shame, shameless. I'm talking about casting off shame or pushing it down or ignoring it or what's become popular today. And this, I think, really speaks to how far down the road we've gone is to any time shame comes up to sort of try and flip it into pride. So those things that would have caused shame, that if they were talked about, it would have been in a shameful way, now are things to be proud of. They are who I am. And, and we think about the notion of identity and how God created us. And people say, well, why would I be ashamed of who God created me to be and who I am is what I do, and therefore I should not be ashamed of anything that I do. That is perhaps the devil's most pervasive lie right now. Who I am is what I do, and that's the end of the story. Now, to some degree, I have to agree that for those outside of Christ, for those who have not put their faith in him and been born again, yeah, who we are, who we were in our sins— we were at enmity with God. We, we were rebels and kind of identified by our rebellion. But that's not who we were made to be. And that's not who we have to be. And that's not who God wants us to be. See, who I am is not what I do. At the end of the day, who I am is someone made in God's image for the purpose of glorifying him and enjoying him forever. And yet, even in the church, we've started subtly buying into this myth, this lie. And we started backing off from ever even talking about shame. Although when you read your Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of times that word shame, bosh, is used. And when you flip into your New Testament, you say, all right, now it'll be gone because of Jesus, right? Not a chance. This is a, a core concept to understand in understanding the cross and what salvation is. And if we ignore it, we'll have an incomplete understanding. And we'll be building on a faulty foundation. I think the church, though, is worried about looking like a caricature of a finger-waggy, Bible-thumping, judgmental bunch of jerks. And sometimes that caricature rings somewhat true, sadly. And so we go to the opposite direction. We say, listen, no, 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 we're not about all that. And, and instead of uh, wanting to speak the truth in a way that is capital T true, we want to get a little bit relative about it and say, well, let's dance around the outsides. We see we saw a couple of weeks ago with Paul as he was talking to the Ephesians. He said, I did not shrink back from giving the entire gospel even though he knew it would cause him trouble, even though he knew it would bristle against the culture of the day, even though he knew he would wind up in prison and he would wind up suffering for it, he said, I'm not going to shrink back. Sadly, I think today we have shrunk back. We're so kind and we're so, and we're so politically correct about the way we present the gospel that we kindly neglect to tell people about the terminal disease they have. You know, like a good doctor does. A doctor who's got really good bedside manner, so good, he's like, ah, I don't want to bring up the whole cancer thing. That would kill the mood. 
That has become in many ways what the church has done. We don't, we don't follow in the words of Jesus and say, deny yourself and follow him. Instead, we say, affirm yourself and everything in you. Who you are, what you do, it's all good. In fact, you might compare it to someone who is stuck in a small prison cell. And they know something's wrong, right? They've got this feeling like, I don't belong here. And instead of coming in and saying, yeah, you committed crimes, you got convicted, you're in jail, remember? But I know how to get you out. We start describing the cell in beautiful detail. Like, come on, think about it this way. It might seem cramped, but it's, I mean, isn't it more cozy? And, and you know, it's very, it's very minimalist, which is popular right now. If you watch HGTV, you know, you've got the, the cot and the toilet. And if there's anything hipsters are going to do next, it's that, like, toilet wine will become the next big thing. You're ahead of the curve on that one. And, and look at the bars. I mean, that, the, like, like pallet wood and barn wood, that's all, that's passe. Bars are also. You know, it's, it's absurd, but in many ways, I think I see it happening all around me. We have shrunk back from proclaiming that part of the gospel that the culture hates most. And in that way, the enemy wins. So before we even move any further, we have to ask the question, what, what is shame from a biblical point of view? What does that word mean if it comes up hundreds of times in the scriptures? Well, shame is the internal acknowledgement of my sinfulness. Shame is acknowledging the brutal effects of sinfulness on my identity. it's, It's almost like an allergic reaction. If someone is stung by a bee, if that person is allergic, they will start to puff up. They will be very obviously allergic very quickly. And inside, probably their airway is starting to close. To avoid that, to to, to say shame is is not something you should ever encounter, and if you do, just push it aside or push it down, is like walking up to someone who's puffing up and saying, listen, you're not going to let a bee ruin your day, are you? You know, stop swelling up so much. Or maybe wear a turtleneck, you won't feel it so much around the day. It's, It's absurd, and yet here we are. I'm okay, you're okay, and that's what the Bible is all about. Well, we go back to the very beginning to find the, the beginning of shame and really the best definition, I think. In Genesis chapter 2, God has created mankind. We have this picture of the entry of shame with, with Eden, and we have a man and his wife in Genesis 2.25, both naked, and they felt no shame. The situation was there was nothing to be ashamed of. There was total openness with God. There was nothing to cover up. There was no guilt, therefore no shame. There was no sin, yet there was just intimacy, and there was just openness, and there was just authenticity, and all of these things that we strive for in the church. There was no shame. But then, in the very next chapter, sin enters the picture. And after sinning, when God comes down in the cool of the evening, he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam responds, I heard you coming in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. They were naked before, but there was no shame. Now, suddenly, there's some sense I've got to cover something up. I, 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 have, to, I have to cover something up because there's something wrong here. And, and that is, for me, the perfect picture. It continues to this day. And when we talk about the the world casting off shame, it's easy to kind of mock Adam for thinking he could hide from God in the bushes, God who is omniscient, but at least he had the sense to hide. 
At least he had the shame. He hadn't pushed it aside and done away with it. Throughout the scriptures, then, there are, there are references to shame. Isaiah has this long diatribe about the shame of those who worship idols. Psalm 119, one of the most beautiful psalms you often read this. Blessed are those who, who, whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all of your commands. Throughout the Old Testament, the hope and the expectation of people is that God will cover their shame as only God can. In fact, in the Old Testament, the worst thing that could be said to anybody is, may you be clothed with shame. Today, we might think of everything in terms of a, a continuum between love and hate or war and peace or something to that effect. Back then, the grid was shame and honor, and you wanted honor, and you wanted shame for your enemies. And so when we see God covering our shame, and we see man trying to cover his shame, either by hiding in the bushes or sewing together fig leaves or whatever, it is the first glimpse of what it means to be separated from our God. To say, you know, I, I need to somehow be saved at this point. Genesis 3.15, in comes the promise. One will come who will take care of that. And so in the meantime, the enemy is at work. To say, I've got to make sure that when this Jesus comes, and even after he comes, no one is aware of their shame. That they're shameless. Tactic number one. That they say, who I am is what I do, and what I do is great, so, hey, there's no problem even to be solved. Forget denying myself, like Jesus says, I will affirm everything about myself and double down on it. And yet, even in the church where we have the truth, this continues to be more and more the outlook. Scripture, Old Testament and New alike, tells us that only in the most desperately wicked of times will there be no shame at all. Will there be, especially the church of Jesus Christ, saying, hey, do whatever you want, that's freedom in Christ. Again and again in the New Testament, we're told, do not use the freedom of Christ as license do not say, let's go on sinning, that grace may abound. And yet there will always be those who will gather around them. Teachers who will say whatever their itching ears want to hear. Well, that guy's got 10,000 followers on Twitter, and he's got a television broadcast. Yeah, a lot of people want their ears scratched. This is no new problem. If we look at Jeremiah chapter 6, there is a rebuke here. For from the least of them to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown. And so this has been a problem from the, as far back as you can go. That, that we have a sense of shame, but we hide it, we ignore it, we press it down, and still it is pushing up under the thin surface of our self-satisfaction. Through into the, into the New Testament, we see the description of the enemies of the cross in Philippians 3. And they're described in, in these three ways. That their end is destruction, their God is their belly, 
and their glory is their shame. Meaning, we know where they're headed, on the broad road that leads to destruction, but on the way, what guides them, their compass, their gut, their, their desires, their, their passions, their carnal nature, and what they glory in is shame. Things have been turned completely upside down. Romans chapter 1, of course, it's because of shameless acts that some are given over to their shameful lusts and receiving themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Even if they don't feel the shame, it then is there. So if I had to boil it all down, I would say in many ways, and this is oversimplistic, shame and guilt are like the little light that comes on on the dashboard of your car. When they're operating correctly and not being abused by someone and not being used by the enemy, it, it's a little warning. Whoa, something's going to happen. And then you start feeling a shake in the car and go, oh, that, that light is right on track. It's a warning system. And it pushes you in the right direction. With your car, it ought to be to the mechanic. I'll tell you this, though. I bought a new car, well, new to me, uh, when it was still cold out. My old car got totaled, and I went and got a, a 2011. I splurged. And uh, this car, it was nice for about a week, and then all of a sudden, service engine soon light came on. Now, I have one of those little computers that you plug in. Got it on eBay for 40 bucks or something a long time ago. Tells you the code, and I said, well, that code can wait. And my new car, my 2011, don't be jealous. It won't remotely start if it has the service engine soon light on. So every time it came up, I'd check, I'd go, okay, same thing, and I would clear it. So that the next morning, I could start my car while I was still in my bathrobe. That was how I started doing it. I kept thinking, when I have time, I'm going to go to the mechanic. Guess what? I stopped even looking at the code. I'd, I'd be driving down the road, boom, service engine soon, without even thinking. I'd plug the computer in at a stop sign. I'd go, clear code. Hey, problem solved. Saved a bunch of money, didn't I? Is this not what we're doing when we say to each other, just forget about any sense of guilt? This is it's the opiate of the masses. Religion will use that to try and control you rather than recognizing that God has built us with a conscience. God has made us with his law written on our hearts. Yes, it's broken, it's fractured until it's written on anew when we're saved, but it's still there. And everyone everywhere knows they need to reach out to their creator and connect with him. And everyone knows there is a gap, a chasm between them and their creator. In the, in the Hebrew, there's a word, avon, that it means sin, and it means guilt, and it means punishment, depending on the context. And so perhaps shame, if we are trapped in our sin, is the sense of panic that you feel when you're trapped somewhere. Has anyone here ever experienced claustrophobia? Anyone a claustrophobic? I did not think I was until I had an experience, oh, about, well, more than 10 years ago, because Calvin was just a little baby, about three months old. He was in August. Calvin was born in May. I, I had told my mother I would bring him to Grand Rapids so that she worked at Calvin College. She's since retired, but she worked in the nursing department. She said, I want everyone to meet the baby. This is Calvin College, Calvin the baby. He was like their mascot. So I head over and I take the stroller and we go up the elevator to the third floor where my mother's office was. I say, here's the baby. Everyone's, oh, he's so cute. I'm like, yeah, he takes it after me. Ha <laughs> ha. We, we decide we're going to go meet my dad for lunch. So me and my mom and the stroller with the baby in it go into the elevator. You see where this is going. We hit the number one button. We start going down. The little number goes three, two, and it's one for a fraction of a second, and then the lights go out. 
doors are still very much closed. And it, the lights going out was one thing, but the sound of the fan going was worse. Because, again, August, and it was already a little stuffy, a little warm in there. And right on cue, baby Kelvin goes, which was this kind of rev up to crying that he had at the time. So I say to my mom, don't panic. She's like, you're the one who seems like you're going to panic. I'm like, I know what to do. I open the little door. I pick up the phone. I worked campus safety at Cornerstone way back in the 1900s. I know what needs to happen. Uh, I need to talk to campus safety. There's an elevator key that can open the doors from the outside and let us out. So I pick up the phone, hold it to my ear, and I hear eh, 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 busy signal. And I think, oh, this is bad news. Now, there was this weird kind of uh, acoustic phenomenon going on where I could hear everything going on outside very clearly, but they were having a hard time hearing us. I don't know if it's the insulation of the thing or the, the way the sound carried up the, the uh, shaft, or I don't know, but, but as soon as I realized we were stuck and the phone didn't work, I very calmly, very casually, banged on the door and said, we're stuck in here! Somebody call for help! And I hear people on the other side say, did I just hear someone in the elevator? And I'm going, yeah, we're in the elevator! Come on! Did you? Well, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think I heard them. And, and, and I started to feel my first ever sense of true claustrophobia. The panic of being stuck in the elevator. Now, here's the thing. This is when it got worse because the I'm upset crying and I, I, Calvin started crying because his dad was banging on things and shouting. It, it got compounded and mixed in with the I'm hungry kind of crying. Now, I had the diaper bag with me. I had bottles with the powder for formula. No water. Could not make his lunch. I said, Mom, this is probably a stupid question, but I mean, I don't suppose you can still... And she was like, do not even finish that sentence. <laughs> Just then, emergency generator kicks on, but all it does is turns on some emergency lights so that I can see my, my upset kid and my mom looking at me like, you are really dumb, aren't you? <laughs> and in that moment, I felt incredibly, incredibly trapped. And I could swear, I know it can't be real, but thinking back at it, I, I just, I know I have a memory of the walls closing in a little at a time as the temperature rose and my son wailed on. That's a picture of what shame does. It says there's a problem. You got to get out of here. You are, you're stuck here. And, and the enemy will try and keep us there. He tries to keep everyone apart from Christ, shamelessly apart from Christ, not, not recognizing the problem, not having a sense of panic, not looking for a savior. And you say, wait a minute, I thought, I thought Satan, I thought the devil, I thought I'm an accuser. Isn't he out here accusing us? Well, go back before Christ came on the scene. Old Testament, where do we see the devil? In the throne room of God. That's where he works. He works there in God's presence, and that's where he accuses the saints. He points and accuses to God. And, and, and so he is trying to keep the pressure on of these people are not fit to be followers, to be in your presence, but at the same time, he loves us to remain shameless and to remain oblivious to the fact that we are stuck. As we are there in that tiny little cell, that little elevator with the sword of judgment hanging over our head and the door locked from the outside. Look at Job chapter 1. 
Where God is in his throne room and Christ is there. We believe it's a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ and a description of him being there. And then what happens? The devil comes and approaches. Where have you been? Well, I've been roaming the world and going back and forth on it. God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan begins to accuse. Well, yeah, he seems like a pretty good guy. He seems like he's committed to you, but... What if you take his wealth? What if you take his health? What if you take his stuff away from him? He'll turn on you. He's a fair-weather follower. Or look in Zechariah chapter 3. We see God in his throne room. We see the high priest, the most holy guy, the, the go-between between all of Israel and God. And he's there, and he's in filthy garments. And Satan is there, and he is pointing out the filth. And look at this. Look how filthy. Look, look, he can't stand in your presence. He's, in fact, the Hebrew word there implies that he's actually covered in dung, like, like, like manure. He can't be here. And so God says to the angel of the Lord, take off his filthy turban and put a clean one on. Take off his filthy garments and put clean, white, spotless linen on him. That is a picture of our salvation. So that there is nothing to accuse. That we, if the devil were to point at Ryan and say, look at, look at this guy. Look at the filth. Look at the sin. We have an advocate. Look at Zach. Look at the stuff he's thought and done. Look at the anger when he's driving. I have an advocate. Right? Look at Sean. I mean, that's just too easy. <laughs> but we have an advocate. We have one who says, no, remove the filth because of the blood of Christ, because of the cross. Look at Hebrews 12. Jesus did not just die for your sins and the punishment of your sins. He did that, but not just that. He also died and took your guilt upon him, became sin for you, and died and bore your shame. He bore your shame on the cross. I'm not making this up. Hebrews 12, 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's the most shameful way you could die. Again, naked and exposed for people to, on, on that road into Jerusalem to go, oh man, I'm glad I'm not that guy. Mocked and spit upon and, and beaten, and he endured it for us and took our shame. That's the gospel. And as those who have been freed, we say to ourselves, I am no longer in that box. And yet so often it feels like it. And I think the reason is, because when we go from death to life, when we are born again, the main strategy of the enemy goes from keep this person shameless to now shame-filled, shameful, pile on the shame. Same old lie, but with a different twist. Who you are is what you do. Therefore, you think you're a new creation. You belong to Jesus now. You're born again. But look at, I know what you've done. You know what you've done. I knew you back then. I know you now. And who you are are all of your failings, all of your sins, all, all of the, the anger or lust or gossip or envy or whatever is in your heart. That's who you are. So trying to use that to paralyze us so that we will not go into God's presence in prayer. We will not proclaim the gospel because we feel unfit to do it, because we feel like uh, we're imposters. And ultimately, we feel like we're stuck in that cell all the same. And it's a bad feeling. I'll tell you, after about 20 minutes or so, I, my, my, my son was... Here's the thing. This is like, I'm talking about it like it's funny because it is like 
for, for harrowing experiences, it's low. But I was scared because you hear about kids in cars getting really hot, and it's dangerous. And it was in the 90s, and it's getting hotter, and we'd taken off his little onesie, and he was still sweating. And, and I, I'm, I'm starting to think, this is bad. So I open the little thing again. I pull out the phone, and I hear switchboard, just as calm as can be. And I said, listen, we're in the science building, and the power's out. And she says, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's out all over campus. I said, don't interrupt. I'm not calling for information. I am calling to get help, to get rescued, because we are stuck in the elevator, and we can't get out. And she said, oh, well, campus safety is going building to building. They'll get there eventually and make sure that they get you. I said, no, listen, you don't understand. I'm stuck in the elevator with my infant son and my elderly mother. <laughs> Ow. And we need to be rescued. We needed to get out. We, we, we were all feeling that sense of panic. Just then I hear campus safety roll up on the other. Remember, we can hear very well what's going on out there. And I hear one of them say to the other, where's this elevator key? Nobody tells me nothing. I don't know. Well, maybe they can stay in there until the power comes back on. <laughs> and I am going, Lord, you got to get us out of here or I am going to lose it. And there are many people who have been bought with the blood of Jesus, who have been saved and still feel stuck because they're believing the lie they believed before. Who I am is what I do. All my failures are my identity. And, and so I can't break out. And, and the result has been a huge sub-industry of Christian books and videos and teachings and even kind of leaders whose whole shtick is, I will teach you how to break out of the bondage, break the curses that might be on you. I will teach you the, the secret formulas of, of jumping up to the next level of sanctification in your life or finally feeling like a real Christian. But let me tell you this, those are all unnecessary because the scriptures give us a wonderful key piece of information that we often forget. Yes, we see Satan in the throne room of heaven in the Old Testament, but he doesn't work there anymore. Right? What did Jesus say as his disciples were coming back from their training mission? He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. As the kingdom went out, he was no longer... And, and you go, wait a minute, that, that, that seems kind of arbitrary. No, no, hold on a minute. As the kingdom goes forth and Jesus gets closer to the cross, as Jesus' first advent, his coming to earth to save us, progressed... Satan falls. In fact, if you read Revelation 20, there's another description of this. That the dragon was cast out of heaven and thrown down to the earth. And that is now his only place that he inhabits. Cast down to earth. In fact, there's the picture to, to emphasize how powerless he is now to stop the power of the gospel, that he is bound with a chain and cast into a pit for a thousand years so that he can, no longer, uh, he can no longer stand in the way between the gospel and the nations. That he can no longer hold them captive. What he can do, though, is make them think they're held captive. And so when somebody tells you you need some big, long prayer that you pray or invoke something against Satan, or, or as sometimes happens in the church, that you should say, I bind you, Satan. Revelation tells us we're trying to do something Jesus already did long ago. There was a Babylon Bee article a couple weeks ago that said local church lets all the other local churches know that they've taken care of Satan for this week, so they don't need to bother with it. Careful with this. I mean, St. Jude tells us that even the archangel Michael when he was contending with Satan over the body of Moses, did not say, 
I rebuke you, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Leave it to him. Because the battle is already won. There is no need for a protracted uh, engagement here. If we can avoid it, the, the score is 500 to 1. There's no chance of a comeback. There's no chance of turning it around. As we said a couple weeks in Sunday school, uh, we were talking about how this is almost as if D-Day has happened, but V-Day has not. Where we are now is in between that, that attack that changed the direction of the war and secured the victor. And now all that's left is to see it through to the end because it is not up for debate. The winner has been announced. And yet still, Satan comes along and tries to pile the shame on us to make you feel like you do not belong in God's presence. You do not belong to be part of his church. You should certainly not call yourself uh, one of his servants and try and spread the word about him. How hypocritical would that be to try and tell you you're still wearing the filthy garment that Christ hasn't taken it off? And in doing this, he is just like George Costanza. Do you remember Costanza? This is a little bit of a dated reference. The classic American television show Seinfeld. Calvin, you probably don't remember Costanza, so let me tell you about him. He's a loser. All right, what happens is George Costanza gets fired, and he just shows up the next day at work as if nothing happened. George Costanza gets dumped by his girlfriend. The next day, he just calls her and says, what are we doing tonight? As if she didn't dump him thinking, hoping that maybe it'll be so awkward to dump him or fire him again that they'll just go, ah, forget it, and go along with it. This is what Satan does. He just shows up again. He can't go back into the throne room of God, so instead he comes to us and he says, you, you're filthy. You don't belong. You are what you've done in the past. You are your failings. You are your sin. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Well, as we go into the New Testament, our relationship with shame changes. Although there still is a place for shame. I mean, go back to what we find that the only remedy to the shame of our sin is the shame of the cross. That we embrace the fact that we have sinned and we take that shame to the foot of the cross and are saved. And because of that, we are not ashamed of him. Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of salvation for all who believe. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. So a, a follower of Jesus will not be ashamed of the cross, ashamed of the blood, ashamed of the gospel, and yet there is still a place for shame. If you look at uh, Romans 6.21, we see this. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Paul reminds them of their former sin and how it's shameful and they ought to now be ashamed of it. Why? Because that reminds them of what Jesus did for them. He doesn't wallow in it. He doesn't say, think about that and get sad and depressed. No, think about that and be grateful and be empowered to go forward in a different direction. Remembering you're not bound by it anymore. That it cannot master you. There's a number of times Paul will say things in the New Testament and say, I write this to shame you. I write this to shame you. But he does that because they are acting as though they are still in their sin when they are not. That shame still ought to be that sense of panic that says, get out, get out of the elevator. But wait, I can't. 
or can I? We're told that those who are forgiven much, love much. Jesus says that about the woman who washed his feet. And when we remember that we were bought with a price despite all of our sin and all of our filth, it causes us to love him more. I wonder if the reason that Jesus' scars remained on his hands and feet inside is so that for eternity we'll never forget. Ten billion years down the road we might go, why is it that we are with... No, no, no. Those scars are always there to remind you. You were bought with a price. And so when Satan comes at you pretending he still has a job in the accusing business, you don't need some elaborate formula. You don't need some crazy military spiritual warfare strategy or some I declare or I bind or anything like that. If shame is the inward acknowledgement of the brutal effects of our sinfulness on our identity, then the answer to shame, the antidote, is to acknowledge that shame no longer defines us and sin no longer defines us. That our identity is not found in those things, but is now found in Jesus Christ. Jesus who hung on a cross and bore our shame on his shoulders. To acknowledge that sin no longer owns us. And this finally brings me around to our primary text for today. Romans 8 1 through 9. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, listen to these words, how comforting they are, how encouraging they are. This is true with a capital T. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, cannot do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the the spirit for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. In other words, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed, even when you don't feel like it. I've often heard people say, I don't feel saved. And I say, well, I'm sure there were times on the, on the ark when Noah and his family didn't feel very safe. There's animals sliding all over. We, we were surrounded by waves and the flood waters and all. The, and yet, who shut the door? God did. Who held them safe? God did. They were safe whether they felt it or not. And sometimes we just need that reminder. About 45 minutes after the power went out, I was in the elevator, still there. I'm sitting down, head in my hands. My mother has finally kind of calmed Calvin down. She's rocking him and humming a tune or something. And I suddenly have this renewed burst of claustrophobia. I rise to my feet and I run up to the door and I palm both doors. And in a futile act of just frustration, I go, and suddenly I see daylight coming in through the windows. And I see all these people standing around in the atrium looking at me like, what's that guy's deal? 
And I see campus safety over here, not looking for the elevator key, but flirting with some girl. And for a moment, I think, maybe I have powers. Right? Or maybe it was like, you know, the woman who lifts the truck off of the two-year-old with all the adrenaline strength or something. And then I realized, no. What happened was the elevator had gotten right where it needed to be, unlatched inside, unlocked. And right as it was about to open for us, the power had gone out. It was unlocked the whole time. From the very beginning, I could have taken probably my pinkies and wedged them in there and opened the door, but I believed I was stuck. We believed we were trapped, and so we were living like we were trapped. And many believers are choosing to believe in that lie to live as if they are still in bondage to sin, still stuck in that cell, still prisoners. There's on your sermon notes sheet a picture that may have confused some of you. Some of you might have thought that Kim had finally snapped. Who knows? It's a horse. This horse is tied to a plastic chair that probably weighs about 10 ounces, right? And yet the horse is standing there. It's clear what's going on here. This horse has been tied up so many times that in his or her mind, I can't tell from this angle, it's just like, oh, okay, if I'm tied up, I'm stuck. And so they could tie it to something that would never hold the horse back. He's being held back by limitations in his own mind, by believing a fiction, by believing an illusion. And we as believers do the very same thing. Remind yourself, D-Day's over, B-Day's coming. The, 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 the battle's been won. The decisive victory is ours in Jesus Christ. And we are free to follow him, to extend his kingdom as we go forward. And as we go to liberate others who are stuck, not by piling shame on them, but also not by saying, be shameless, and describing the cell as if it were a beautiful resort rather than a prison. And in all of this, the ace we have up our sleeve is this bit of knowledge. Costanza doesn't work here anymore. You want to know the formula for spiritual warfare? James gives it to us. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There it is. And so when Satan comes to you with accusations or temptations or whatever he wraps that lie around, you don't need to have a protracted engagement. You don't need to have a, a formula. You don't need to have a fight. Just turn around and walk away. I mean, who wants to have an argument with George Costanza? Even if you win, you lose. The scripture tells us again and again to flee. Flee idolatry, flee fornication, flee youthful lusts, flee covetousness, flee the love of money. Not running away from the devil like we're scared, but running to the cross. Because that's where we ought to find our identity, not in all this other stuff. Like Father Stopitz told Luther, look to the wounds of Christ. Find your identity there. Say to him, I'm yours, Jesus. Save me. When these things come, when, when discouragement and despondency comes, when temptation comes, wrapped in this notion that it's all hopeless and you might as well give in, just take a breeze. Open the scriptures. Turn away from the tempter and turn to the one who set you free. Remember that door is not locked. You've not been tempted in any way other than what is common to man, and whenever you are tempted, God will provide a way out. And in this case, it was the most obvious way out but because of the limitations I had in my mind, I didn't see it. Satan cannot corner us in that little cell anymore. We've been sprung from that cell. 
And so we can simply turn around, show them our back, and say, you know what, I'm bored with this. I don't want to have this conversation again. I don't need to play the shame game. I've got stuff to do. I've got to teach my poodle to tap dance or wash my hair or something. I don't need to play the shame game anymore because I am bought and paid for. I am free indeed. Now, I'm not promising you that you will have immediate and absolute victory over every sin by just bearing in mind, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, or saying flee from temptation and flee to the cross. What I am saying is that in any given situation, you do have the option of leaving and running to Christ. That there is never a one single temptation that comes your way that will overwhelm you. There is never a lie that is something you cannot defuse with the knowledge that Satan no longer has a place in God's presence. That instead of Satan standing between you and your Creator accusing, Jesus stands between you and the Creator at the right hand of God, interceding and making peace, welcoming us into His presence. Perhaps you want to take our friend, the horse here, with you. And put it somewhere where you're often tempted. Whether it's for me, maybe on my dashboard, I get tempted to shout and shake my fist. Or maybe it's in your cubicle because the person next to you is really annoying and you want to gossip about them or think angry thoughts. Or maybe it's by your TV where you're tempted to watch things that Christians should not be watching. Whatever the case, don't be this horse. Don't be this horse that gets tied to a little tiny, sad, blue, plastic lawn chair and stays put. You've been set free by Jesus Christ. You've been in, given the power indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You are a power to be contended with yourself. Put on the full armor of God and fight against the devil. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you when you don't walk away from him. At the end of the day, you will be given victory. Victory in Jesus. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that even when we again and again believe the lie that who we are is our failings and our sins and what we've done in the past and what we struggle with now, that Lord, we can always turn back to you and be reassured of the truth that who we are is your children, that you love us, that you will accept us, that you will hold us close to you, Lord, we are thankful for this good news. And Lord, we pray that you would, through your Spirit, open our eyes always to the fact that that door to the cell that seems to hold us tight and seems to be absolutely impenetrable, that the door is already unlocked, that you left it open, and that we can leave and come to you and commune with you and enjoy you in your presence. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.